got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and this is the podcast where I pick one ultra-famous day from history, tell you what the headlines had to say about that event, and then I keep looking in the newspapers to tell you what else was being reported on those famous days. I tell you the stories that maybe history has forgotten. I knew what event I wanted to talk about today, but unlike most events, I had a hard time choosing the date. You see, the inciting incident was first printed about on one day, but that incident wasn't printed about in newspapers until the following day. But the magnitude of what really happened during this huge event wasn't reported until even another day after that. Basically, I could have chosen November 18th, 19th, or 20th of 1978. Ultimately, I decided to pick the headline from the 20th, since that's the first time the entire event was written about. This headline comes from the Miami News. It says, Hundreds dead in camp, victims of mass suicide. Yes, friends, this is the story of the Jonestown Massacre. Before we get into what actually happened on that day, you'll probably want a little bit of background. A man named Jim Jones founded a church he called the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ while he was living in Indianapolis, Indiana. The church believed in Christianity as well as a mix of communism and socialism. Although I will say here, Reverend Jones eventually openly admitted that he was an atheist. Anyway, the group also believed in equality for all races. When the church's membership began to grow, Reverend Jones moved his headquarters to California. At this point, it's believed there were a few thousand members of the church, a church that many believed was a cult. More and more was asked of the members, including the fact that they should only adopt kids and that they could only spend major holidays with the temple rather than with their relatives. The members were slowly being weaned off everything from the outside world. They had a lot of influence in some areas and ran residential care homes, foster homes, and a ranch for developmentally disabled people. The group made their opinions known when it came to politics. In 1973, a group of people defected from the church and were so scared that they'd face retaliation that they headed for the Canadian border with guns. Jones did have them followed, and he even hired an airplane to try to track them on the highway. He was so angry that he started talking about mass suicide. That became the first of many discussions about such a thing. In 1974, part of the group moved to the country of Guyana in South America. That settlement was nicknamed Jonestown. Within four years, its population was over 900. Family members who didn't belong to Jones's church were worried. They didn't have much, if any, contact with their loved ones, and they believed that they were being held by Reverend Jones against their will. Rumors of horrible abuse and punishment circulated. The newspapers from November 18th of 1978 printed many headlines about Democratic Representative Leo Ryan. He decided to fly to Guyana himself and assess the situation. He was confident he'd be able to see through any claims and find out the real truth. As he met with people at the Jonestown compound, 
he did indeed find people that said they wanted to leave. He agreed to take them back to the United States with him, and they all filed down to the airstrip. Unfortunately, the Jonestown guards didn't want them to leave, and just when the group was about to board their airplane, the guards opened fire. Representative Ryan, three journalists, and one of the defectors were killed. Nine others were injured. That incident alone was enough to make front-page headlines around the country and world on November 19th. But sadly, the horror in Guyana wasn't over yet. On November 20th, the day I chose as our famous date, newspapers printed headlines screaming what had been discovered at the compound the next day when authorities paid them a visit. Instead of finding people walking around, going about their daily business, they found body after body after body. Reverend Jim Jones and his followers had ended their lives in a mass suicide by drinking grape flavor aid that had been mixed with cyanide. When all was said and done, 918 people lost their lives that day. 276 of those were children. It was the deadliest intentional event in U.S. history until September 11, 2001. But enough about the Jonestown Massacre. I could go on and on and on about the events of that day and the events leading up to it, but this podcast isn't about the famous events. It's about the stories that shared the newspaper pages with the famous headlines. And today I have three very different stories to share with you. So let's find out what else was being reported on November 20th, 1978. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking a headline from the Minneapolis Tribune, published on November 20th, 1978. It says, Death of Diplomat's Daughter Has Qualities of Mystery Novel. As an author and a lover of mystery novels, I knew this would be a good story. The whole thing started three years before this article was written. That's when Alexandra Michaelides, who went by the name of Sasha, suddenly passed away. Alexandra, or Sasha, was the daughter of David Bruce, a wealthy diplomat. He'd been the U.S. ambassador to both France and Britain and had led the American delegation to the Vietnam peace talks in Paris, amongst other notable accomplishments. When not living overseas, David Bruce and his family lived in a castle in Virginia. Well, sort of. Their home, known as Staunton Hill, sat on a plot of land hundreds of acres big, and was patterned after a castle in Scotland. It had been in the family for generations, turrets and all. Needless to say, as a wealthy heiress, who was also said to be very beautiful, Sasha was a prize to be won in some people's minds. In 1974, while living in Europe, Sasha started dating a man from Greece. His name was Marios Michaelides. When they came back to the U.S. a short time later and announced their engagement, Sasha's father was, quote, strenuously opposed to the match. He didn't want Sasha marrying Marios, but he didn't try to stop her. And when the two were married at the courthouse a short time later, David Bruce and his wife didn't attend the wedding. But he did gift them the Bruce family silver, 
a collection of knives, forks, and spoons with the Bruce family crest on it. It was just three months after their marriage that Sasha died. She was found on the lawn of Staunton Hill with a bullet through her head. She was rushed to the hospital 50 miles away, but died in the wee hours of the morning the next day. She never regained consciousness. The gun that was used belonged to her husband, Marios, and he claimed that she had been target practicing, and that's why it was in her possession. Sasha's death was ruled a suicide. There was no autopsy. There was no coroner's inquest. Sasha was buried in her wedding dress 11 hours after she died. Yes, you heard that right. She was buried in the afternoon of the same day that she died. This is not the 1800s or the 1700s. This is the 1970s. The quick burial raised eyebrows all over the county. Why the rush? But nobody dared say anything to David Bruce or ask for an explanation. You see, he'd lost another daughter, Audrey, a few years earlier when the plane she and her husband were on disappeared somewhere near the Virgin Islands. The man had lost two daughters and he was suffering. Nobody wanted to cause more hurt by questioning why things were done the way they were, or why Sasha, a seemingly happy newlywed, would suddenly kill herself. After Sasha was buried, David Bruce supposedly paid $200,000 to Marios to walk away from the family and not try to claim anything else of Sasha's. That's a lot of money. Even though 29-year-old Sasha had supposedly changed her will to say that Marios got everything if something ever happened to her, Marios took the payment from her family and disappeared. But fast forward three years and he's suddenly thrust back into the picture. Some of David Bruce's friends had been in an antique store looking at old books and they found some with David Bruce's book plate pasted inside. It didn't make sense to them. He had pride in his book collection. When they asked him about it, David Bruce discovered that he had some missing books. About 150 missing books, that is. The total value of those missing books was around $65,000. Authorities tracked down Marios and started looking into his life. And, surprise, surprise, everything wasn't exactly on the up and up with him. While dating Sasha, he'd been traveling to East Tennessee. He claimed he was thinking of starting a mill there and was researching potential sites. In reality, Marios was already married to a lady named Mary and he was going to visit her. He went to Haiti, got a divorce from Mary just two weeks before he and Sasha were married. The article doesn't say if Sasha knew about the other wife or not, but it's hinted at that she didn't know. Fast forward a few months past Sasha's death and Mary gives birth to a baby girl. She'd already been pregnant when Sasha and Marios married. Three years later, when authorities caught up with Marios and started questioning the circumstances of his wife's death and the missing books belonging to her father, Marios was back to living with Mary, and she was considered his common-law wife. Marios had been supporting Mary and the baby, and they even took a trip to Greece together. Marios was charged with grand larceny, embezzlement, bigamy, and murder. He denied everything and claimed that Sasha killed herself because of the cruel treatment of her mother. He said that none of Sasha's siblings liked their mother, and they tried to stay as far from her as they could. Bruce refused to extradite him, but because of a treaty with the U.S., 
it was possible for him to stand trial for U.S. charges in Greece if they cooperated. Sasha's body was eventually exhumed and an autopsy performed, and then she was reburied next to her father, who had died a couple of years after she did. Her family threw away the headstone Marios had originally put on her grave. Now, I read three or four articles printed at the same time in 1978, and it was interesting to see just how much they varied in the facts and details. It seemed that some articles wanted to give the details that would make Marios look guilty, while others gave details that questioned his guilt. For example, one article quoted a person as saying that Sasha had attempted suicide a year before she died by taking poison. They also claimed that Marios was asking to come back to the United States to prove his innocence, and claiming that the stolen books had actually been given to him by Sasha's brothers. I found articles talking about delays in a Greek trial in 1979, and in 1982, four years after charges were brought against Marios, and seven years after Sasha died, multiple newspapers rehashed the story, but said there was still not a conclusion, and Marios had never gone to trial. Newspapers printed about it again in 1984, and again in 1985. But nothing new was ever reported. So in a way, I guess that's how the story ends. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm going to share a headline and story I read about in the Herald and Review out of Decatur, Illinois. The headline caught my eye because it brought up so many questions. It says, Cave World Dwells Under Abe Lincoln. Pretty intriguing, right? Well, this article tells a little-known fact about the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. I've only visited the memorial once, and it was really late at night, 14 or 15 years ago, and we were in a hurry. It had been pouring rain all day, and we wanted to see as many of the monuments and memorials and buildings around the National Mall as possible while we weren't getting soaked. I didn't have the time then to really look at and research and contemplate the Lincoln Memorial. And admittedly, I haven't given a lot of thought to its origin since then. Plans to make a memorial dedicated to Abraham Lincoln started almost immediately after his death. By 1867, an official Lincoln Memorial Association was formed by Congress. However, due to this and that and the other thing, it took decades for the memorial to get underway. It took all the way until 1901, 34 years after the committee was formed, for a site to be chosen for the memorial. At first, the site was a bit controversial. The land was swampy and believed to be a questionable area meaning a place where murderers dump bodies. Ten more years passed before President Taft signed the Lincoln Memorial Bill, which designated $2 million for the building of the memorial. A designer and a sculptor were chosen. Henry Bacon designed the memorial using a style reflective of a Greek temple. Why? Well, Henry Bacon knew that Lincoln was remembered as almost godlike in the minds of the American people, and he wanted to represent that. The memorial has 36 Doric columns, representing the 36 United States that existed when Lincoln died, but since 12 more states had been added from the time he died until the time the monument was dedicated, each of those 48 states' names are carved around the top of the building. 
Later, when Alaska and Hawaii were added to the Union, plaques with their names were added. The building stands 99 feet high. The full text of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was etched into the walls of the memorial. The building itself is an impressive structure, but for all of you who have visited Washington, D.C. and have seen the Lincoln Memorial for yourself, you'll know that the statue of the 16th president inside the building, a statue that was designed by Daniel Chester French, is just as impressive. Originally, the statue was meant to be around 10 feet tall. In real life, Lincoln stood about 6 feet 4 inches. I know this because sometimes we compare my son of the same size to Lincoln. Anyway, when all was said and done, the statue of Lincoln sitting in a chair stands at 19 feet tall. The memorial was finally dedicated on Memorial Day of 1922. The memorial was made of different materials from around the country, like limestone from Indiana and marble from Georgia, Massachusetts, Alabama, and Tennessee. The Lincoln Memorial quickly became a site that many visiting the nation's capital wanted to see. It was a gathering place. It was and is the location of many famous events, including Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I Have a Dream speech. Some people think that Lincoln was buried underneath the memorial, but that's not true at all, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. He's actually buried in his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. Now, all of that is interesting, but it doesn't say anything about the headline I read to you earlier. Cave World Dwells Under Abe Lincoln. Remember how the memorial was built in a rather swampy area? Well, rather than build the heavy building with the big statue on the ground, a foundation needed to be built. A deep, cavernous foundation. There's another unique feature down there. You see, there are stalactites just like in a real cavern. And if you've ever taken a tour of a cave system that has stalactites and stalagmites, you'll know that they grow extremely slowly. We're talking less than 10 centimeters every thousand years. But even though the 100th anniversary of the memorial isn't until next year, there have been stalactites growing underneath the memorial for decades. Big stalactites. Because of the nature of the building materials used in the statue and building, and the swampy, watery area where it was built, the stalactites were able to grow at a crazy rate. What should have taken millions of years to develop barely took half a century. The article from 1978 says that the National Park Service decided to give tours underneath the memorial. They would give eight tours a week, and they were sold out for many weeks in advance. It seems that everyone wanted to see what it looked like underneath Abe Lincoln. The National Park Service encouraged anyone going on the unique tour to wear old clothes. They also handed out flashlights to participants at the beginning of the tour. In another surprise twist, there are cave drawings underneath the memorial. Of course, we're not talking about anything ancient, but there are charcoal drawings from the early days of the monument, perhaps done by the workers. Some of the drawings include Mutt and Jeff, an old comic strip, and a drawing of Warren Harding, who was the president when the memorial was dedicated. Sometimes schoolchildren who lived during the 1970s and 1980s were treated to a tour of the underground cavern. But if you'd like to see it for yourself, you're out of luck. The tours were stopped in 1989 after asbestos was discovered down there. Select people are still allowed in occasionally with special permission. 
Since I am probably you will never be able to actually see the Lincoln Memorial Cavern, I'll share pictures of the area in the additional history headlines you probably miss Facebook group. Supposedly, they're going to reopen the underground area, along with some exhibits down there, for the 100th anniversary of the memorial next year. Let's hope the pandemic and capital riots haven't put a stop to that. For my last additional history story of the day, I found an article in the Tampa Times out of Florida. The article tells about an incident that happened in Chicago, and I think it's the perfect way to end this podcast episode. On a lighter note than I started it, that is. This headline says, Next time, just give the man your money. Now, this article is actually on the opinion page of the newspaper. That can often make a big difference in the facts because it's, well, it's someone's opinion. I rarely share articles from these pages, but this article is different because it tells about something that really happened and then the reporter comes to a conclusion about someone's guilt or innocence after reading it. We can skip over that part. Or not. We'll see. Anyway, a woman named Alina Kaleza wrote to the reporter of the article, a man named Mike Royko, because she had read an article on a different day about her boyfriend, and she believed the writer of that article had gotten it all wrong, and she wanted to tell her boyfriend's side of the story. In all fairness to Alina, if my boyfriend, or fiancé, was referred to as a, quote, screaming, cursing thief in the newspaper, I'd be a bit concerned, too. On the day in question, Alina's boyfriend, Timothy Blecka, was said to have caused quite a scene in a local shopping center. Witnesses said he was running around from store to store, grabbing people's purses and other belongings, and throwing them. He was also said to have thrown merchandise around. He did this all while screaming and cursing. Of course, some very concerned citizens saw some police in the area and told them what was going on. The police got involved and tried to stop Timothy. But he ended up fighting with four different policemen before they were finally able to subdue him enough to arrest him and put him in the back of a patrol car. It sounds like a pretty cut-and-dry story, right? Well, Alina insisted all of it was wrong, and for her sake, since she was marrying the guy, I hope the version of events that he told her was the correct version of how things went down. According to Timothy... He was walking to pick Alina up from the travel agency where she worked. Suddenly, someone came up to him from behind and demanded that Timothy hand over all of his money. Timothy was so freaked out that he started to run. And while he was running, he pulled out his wallet and threw it behind himself. Then he took off his jacket and threw that too. He said he had lots of days left to live and didn't want to get his brains blown out. Timothy kept running through the crowded area with a certain destination in mind. He was headed to a disco lounge called The Nasty Habit. He frequented the place and had friends that worked there. If he could just make it to The Nasty Habit, he'd be able to get help. Except the lounge was closed. The owner was away at lunch or something, and the door was locked. So if you saw a man running down the street, appearing to disrobe and throwing his belongings around... What would you think? You'd think he was crazy, right? People saw that and assumed the worst. Some saw him running through the crowd and assumed he'd stolen something and was trying to get away. People in the crowd started yelling, Stop! Thief! 
Well, Timothy heard the crowd yelling, Stop, thief! and assumed they were yelling at the person who had tried to rob him. Timothy thought he was still being chased, so he ran faster. It was about that time that a nearby police officer became aware of the situation, and of course they tried to stop him. They had no idea whatsoever what he'd done wrong, but since he was running, they figured it was something pretty bad. The biggest question here is why Timothy didn't stop when he saw the first cop. Why didn't he run straight to the man? According to Alina, Timothy didn't trust cops. I don't know if it was because he'd had run-ins with them in the past, or maybe he had a prior record. I don't know. The article didn't ever say. Anyway, more cops were in the area investigating the car accident, and when they heard a big commotion, they looked up to see what's happening. All they see is Timothy running away from one of their fellow officers, and a bunch of concerned citizens joining in on the chase. Naturally, those cops jump into the horde and put a stop to the chase. They had to use their billy clubs to get Timothy under control enough to get into the back of their patrol car. Timothy said he has claustrophobia and didn't like the idea of being trapped in the back of the car, so he did the most sensible thing in the situation. He kicked out one of the windows. An officer then hit him over the head with a billy club and knocked him unconscious. Timothy was charged with resisting arrest, damaging city property, and being disorderly. So, which version of the story do you believe? Would it make a difference if I tell you that the cops went back and looked, and Timothy's wallet and jacket were exactly where he said he'd thrown them? And it was possible that his screaming and running scared the real thief away? I don't know how it all ended for Timothy because I couldn't find anything else about it other than the initial story that was reprinted in many newspapers. But a December 4th notice in the Chicago Tribune announced that Timothy and Alina would be married later that month on December 23rd. For today's advertisement, I'm looking at an ad in the Victoria Advocate out of Victoria, Texas. One thing that we can pretty much guarantee in life is that prices are going to go up for pretty much everything we use. There is an exception to this, though, and that's electronic equipment. When I was a child, I remember having to rent VCRs from the movie store because they weren't yet commonplace in all households. By the time VCRs became obsolete, you could get one for about 20 bucks. The same thing could be said for computers. The expensive home computers from the 1980s couldn't hold a candle to the cheaper, much more powerful computers we have now. The same goes for cameras, which is what this ad is for. Since November 20th, 1978 was Thanksgiving week, newspapers were starting to print advertisements for Christmas gifts. JCPenney advertised Minolta, Pentax, and Canon cameras for prices ranging from $260 to $330. If inflation is taken into consideration, those same cameras would cost between $1,000 and $1,300 nowadays. And I'm guessing that the camera on any cell phone would be better than what those cameras could have done. Kind of interesting. Friends, thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you learned something you never knew before, whether it was about the Jonestown Massacre or the Lincoln Memorial or something else. Join me this Thursday for another mini-episode where I'll tell you some stories that I think you're really going to like. 
Then I'll be back again on Monday with another full episode from an event that many of you will remember personally. Talk to you later.